Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks, Sheila. Do you keep that passage in front of you? Um, we're continuing, uh, I suppose, we're at the penultimate Sunday of our walk through the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians, a, a letter or a book written by one of the very earliest Christians, the Apostle Paul, to a group of Christians in uh, the Greek city of Thessalonica. And we've walked our way through. Uh, some both practical and also um, incredibly rich theological uh, teaching about what it means to live for Jesus, what it means to be a disciple, and in particular what it means to have a faith that is relevant, that's not some sort of floating out in some sort of theological spiritual never-never land, but actually has uh, legs and arms that sort of walk this earth and that do what's important. And we come today to a a remarkable passage that um, gives us a window into that biggest question of all, uh, the question of what happens when we die. Now, I need to give you a health warning, not that sort of health warning, um, but a health warning to do with uh, for whom this is relevant. Now, on the face of it, this is relevant for all of us. Uh, We're all going to die at some point. This tells us what's going to happen. It's as blunt as that, straightforward as that. But actually, for at least some of us here today, this isn't the last thing that you need and probably want to hear. Um, it would be the equivalent of finding somebody by the side of the road who's just been involved in a car accident, maybe broken their leg, and finding on Google um, a listing of all the different types of fracture and reading out to them the different ways in which they can be treated. It's not what they need at that moment. What they need is somebody to look after them, to put an arm around their shoulder and say, I've called an ambulance. If you're in the midst of grieving... If this for you is not simply relevant because it's interesting but painfully prescient, this may be the last thing that you need to hear at this moment. Not because it's not true, not because it's not relevant, but just because actually you simply need to know that you're loved, that life has meaning, that there are people around you who will care for you. Um, So listen, maybe park it away on one side, come back to it at a time when you can process it and chew over it. Because I want to talk in quite factual terms. I want to talk in quite blunt, straightforward terms, just as Paul does, about what he wants to tell us about the end of life and what lies beyond. And I think what Paul wants to say to us is to say, this is not just something to speculate about, it's something to know about. Nor is this something simply for sort of idle thought. This is vitally important, and it will change how you live today. And finally, this is not just simply something that sort of 
in some ethereal never-never land sort of that's just happening up there somewhere. This is about the end of all things and the beginning of all things. There is a time as well as a timeless component to it. Let's start at the beginning. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest who have no hope. Paul is convinced that this is something that we can know with certainty. This is information he wants to pass on, not just speculation. Information, not just speculation. Now, that's a very radical claim. There are many, many things that in this world we'd want to say, well, we can't really know. I was reading quite recently an interview with um, Brian Cox, the world-famous and very telegenic uh, particle physicist, talking about um, what happened before the Big Bang. Now, we'll come back to the air quotes around before in a moment, um, when we think start talking about the language of time. But for the moment, it's worth just noting about how Brian Cox, somebody who was an eminent scientist who's used to facts and certainty, how he speaks about the things that we don't know, or even the things that we, in his opinion, can't know. Speculation about what happened before the Big Bang. Speculation about how many universes there might be, an infinite number perhaps. Speculation about whether there might be an end or not. And as far as he's concerned, there are all sorts of things that we can't know or may never know. And for many of us, I suppose, we think about what happens after death and we think, well, I don't know, I hope. I hope there's something good. I hope there's something to look forward to. There's a beautiful book, which I do recommend, although it's not an easy read at all, and it's something to read when you're feeling, a, if you like, in a good place, um, uh, but you won't be able to put it down. It's called Before I Say Goodbye, uh, by and about Ruth Piketty, who was a journalist and um, who died far too young and whose husband collated papers and, and notes and diary entries and so on. And right at the end, and I'll come back and read a little quote from it later on, he talks about her death. And he says for the first time in his life, he's able to appreciate properly why it is that some people, not him, not her, some people believe in a life beyond this life. But in writing about it, he calls it a magnificent fiction. A magnificent fiction. He says, I can understand why you might hope for it. I don't believe it myself, but I can sort of get why you might hope. Paul wants to say this isn't just a, a magnificent thing we create. Here is something that we can know. I don't want you to be ignorant. In other words, there is a something to know. Don't be ignorant of it. So how can we know? Isn't that the million-dollar question? How can we know what's to come? Well, the answer's there in verse um, uh, 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. The Christian faith is the only uh, religious faith, the only worldview outlook that is based entirely, stands entirely on something that happened in history. Now that sounds a really odd claim. 
But when you look at what the Christian faith says, even about the things that you might imagine, a sort of speculation, sort of ethereal spirituality, every single one of them has its feet planted firmly in the sands of Palestine 2,000 years ago. Every single one of them starts from the position of there was this human being called Jesus who left footprints in the sand, who ate real food, who had real friends, who dripped real blood, who died really physically, and who, Christians claim, rose again from the dead. A real physical happening in history. And Paul wants to say to us, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep because I'm certain of what will happen because I've already seen it. I've already seen what will happen happen in the present. I want to take you back to the Easter story. In a few weeks' time, we'll be celebrating Easter. But for Christians, actually, every Sunday is Easter Sunday in many ways. We celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, as we'll do in communion. And what we remember together is that what the disciples saw and experienced wasn't just a wish-fulfillment-y sort of hallucination of some ethereal figure or the meeting of a ghostly presence. What they met was somehow a physical presence, one whom they could touch and hold one who would pick up fish and eat it and yet one who wasn't quite as they expected him to be one whom you didn't immediately recognize and then when you did it was so obvious one who still bore the nail marks in his wrists and the spear mark in his side one who could appear in a locked room and disappear at will and yet one who was real corporeal stuff Here is, they said, the one who is firstborn, the taste of what's to come. If you want to know, says Paul, what's going to happen after we die, he says it's really easy. You don't have to speculate, you don't have to wonder, you don't just have to hope, build a magnificent fiction. You just have to look at Jesus. Jesus really died. The Romans were really good at crucifixion. They were very practiced at it, very efficient at it. They were uh, past masters of killing people. It was a brutal regime. They killed Jesus, stone cold dead. They wrapped him tightly in bindings that even if you'd been fully alive, you wouldn't have been able to pull off. They put him in a tomb with a huge stone outside, and yet within three days, he was to be met. He was to be touched, held. He ate food. He talked. He breathed. Firstborn from among the dead. Not resuscitated like Lazarus, not just sort of brought back into life, but was somehow going beyond this life through death to the life of the world to come. We can know that there is life because in Jesus, that life has been met. That life has come into the midst of our life. And therefore, we know that that life is physical, not somehow floating around in a sort of spiritual nighty on a cloud, you know, strumming an ethereal harp. This is proper, real, physical, food-eating, footprint-leaving stuff, and yet it's different and beyond. Now, if the, the talk of being able to go from one room to another room without worrying about doors and walls with if the 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 thought of not always being recognizable and yet then being recognizable leaves you thinking oh this is all a bit vague for me you simply have to go back to physics and back to science that most precise 
of disciplines. And actually, if you talk to particle physicists, when I was at university, I was an engineer, so we, we dealt with bridges and roads and computers, and this sort of theoretical stuff was a bit beyond us. But my physicist friends, they were far more metaphysical and theoretical than any Christian I've ever met. There was some wonderful language about other dimensions and uh, other existences and string theory that posits that there are between 10 and 24 dimensions to life. And you think, wow. But of course, what they're doing is they're saying somehow language runs out when you're trying to describe a reality that is beyond our immediate experience. But that doesn't make it any less real. This is information, says Paul, not speculation. You can know because Jesus rose from the dead. You too can know the promise of a new life. But Paul also wants to say to us, this is essential stuff, not just an idle chat. This is not just the stuff for late nights over a glass of wine, speculating about the stuff that doesn't really matter, but having a good time doing so. Paul wants to say to us, this really matters. I don't want you to be ignorant. Why? Well, for a start, and maybe this is where it does press on us when we're in the midst of grief, because he doesn't want us just to grieve like everybody else does. He says, I don't want you to grieve like the rest who have no hope. It makes a difference what we believe about life beyond this life. It makes a difference. Now, interestingly enough, and this is really important to hear, he doesn't say, I don't want you to grieve. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, I don't want you to grieve like the rest. It's not that Christians are sort of full of joy and happiness when somebody dies. There's a, there's a gut-wrenching, uh, heart-tearing response to death because it's not the way we were built. We weren't meant to have a life that ends. There's something really deep down built into human beings that just rails against the fact of death. It's wrong. Life shouldn't end. Of course it shouldn't. It's entirely not something just to be welcomed. Jesus himself stands at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And bear in mind, he's about to raise him from the dead. And he weeps. And the word used to, for Jesus weeping isn't just sort of polite little tears. It's a stomach-churning, heart-breaking yowl of anger and despair and horror. Death is wrong. It's not what God intended in this world. But the Christian doesn't end there in their grieving because their grief points beyond to the longing for and the knowledge of a life beyond this life. It's essential to know what comes because it changes the way we grieve. But actually, it's essential to know what comes because it changes everything else too. In fact, I guarantee that you could look at every single sentence and paragraph that Paul has written in the first part of his letter and find that none of it makes any sense at all without the life of the world to come. None of it. Work your way back. Start back at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians 1. Have a look when you get home or tonight or tomorrow morning. Work your way through and keep asking yourself the question, would this mean anything if there wasn't life of the world to come? Would this matter? Would this be worth doing? Chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians talks about living a life of gratitude. Well, that's lovely. But if life is just a full stop at the end, and it all just disappears through our fingers, what is there really thoroughly to be grateful for? 
Or when we talk in chapter 2 and chapter 3 about living life for the audience of one. Well, what a pointless existence that is. Surely we should be living for here and now if there's nothing in the life of the world to come. Why would I live for God? Only if I'm going to spend eternity with him. Only if the life of the world to come is with the audience of one. What about last week as Jez was helping us to think about holy lives, lives set apart entirely for God? Again, it only makes sense if that's the purpose of eternity, the purpose of where we're heading. This is essential stuff. We need to know that we are given the offer of a life beyond this life, a life with God, real, physical, perfect, rich and rewarding and full of joy, because it changes how we live now and it changes how we view death. There's one more thing. This is slightly harder to pin down, but it's essential, I think. The last couple of verses of this passage, and then if you looked on to the other chunk that we could have read at the beginning of chapter 5, is all about something that's going to happen in the future. Now, this is a little subtle, but it, it dawned on me as I was reading it this week that if we have no thought about a future point, death and life beyond becomes a sort of rather grey, unpindownable existence in some sort of parallel dimension. Sort of dead people doing their own thing somewhere over here. I'm waving my arms around in the sky just to sort of say over there somewhere. And we get on with the really important stuff here. As if, you know, we're the main attraction and somehow they've gone off into the wings. We're on the stage, but they're just sitting in chairs and, you know, chatting and doing their thing. Whereas what Paul writes here and what the Bible is consistent about is that there is going to come an end point in history. There will come a day, says Paul, when Jesus will return. The one who has already risen from the dead will come back and draw a line under history. Put a full stop at the end of time. And at that point, from our perspective, if we're the ones who are left when he returns, from our perspective, that's when everything will happen. The dead will be raised, we will be raised to be with him, that this life of the world to come will begin in earnest. And yet, says Paul, at the same time, it's already begun. I mean, Jesus makes that clear on the cross, doesn't he? Do you remember there was a thief alongside him? And the thief says to Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus doesn't say, yeah, in a few thousand years' time when I return. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. So how can something be both today and still to come? And that is, of course, when we hit the language of time and eternity. Um, on a quick aside, for those of a certain age, if you've ever read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, thank you, I was just worrying that it was only me in the entire room. If you, and if you haven't, you should at least Google Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy um, time grammar or time travel grammar. There's a beautiful bit in it where he speculates about how you might create a grammar for language to deal with the, promise, the problems of time travel and the problem of eternity, and the problem of timelessness. It is almost impossible, no, it is impossible, to talk coherently about an existence that doesn't involve time, that is outside of time. It's why we have trouble with this whole business of, G, of God knowing everything that's going to happen, but we still have free will within it. It's why we have the problem of, uh, of this, this idea of what has already happened yet, yet is still to happen. 
Physicists have the same problem, just to come back to that same little theme. But here's the core of it. Viewed at from our point of view, there is going to come a time when Jesus will return. Draw a line under history and put all things right. And if you and I are still alive when he returns, it could be this afternoon, it could be in 10 years' time, it could be in a 1,000 years' time. But if we're still alive when he does, we will experience that moment of joy when all things are put right and when we get to spend eternity with him. If we've already died, our experience will be, I suspect, like the thief on the cross, that sense of today. Today, we will be with him. Why is that important? Well, because life and the history of the world isn't just an endless cycle like some religions would have it. A cycle of death and rebirth, death and rebirth. A sort of cycle round and round and round with no progress, no time. Actually, the Bible says there will come a day when God just says, enough. The end. And a new beginning. Isn't that good news? Isn't it good news that we can know that this life isn't all there is to life? That there is life beyond life? That it isn't just speculation, but that in Jesus, in his life and death, and in especially his resurrection, we have the certainty of knowing this gift of life. Isn't it good news to know that we can live today in the light of eternity? That makes a huge difference to what you will do even today. If you believe that you are living towards a life that is for eternity, for the audience of one, then that little thing you do today that nobody else ever sees, that choice you make to not speak the harsh word, that choice you make to speak truth, that choice you make to love when it's painful, that choice you make to be humble when you feel like being arrogant, that choice you make to be kind when you feel like being harsh, that choice you make to speak of hope when it would be so easy just to keep your mouth shut, that choice you make to live out the good news of Jesus, even when others think it is patently absurd, those choices you make each day are only worth it, but are so worth it in the light of what is to come. Isn't that good news? This life is different because of the life that we look forward to. And isn't it good news? in the midst of a world that feels day by day like it tears itself apart, in a world that breaks our hearts because of the damage that is done to the world, to the environment, because of the damage that is done to the poor and to the homeless, because of the damage that is done within families and communities and between friends. Isn't it good news to know that that is not all there is? That we are working towards, longing towards, living towards a day when God says, Enough draws a line under history and puts all things right. That's good news to live out of. That's good news to share. That's good news because and only because the life and death of Jesus. Let's pause for a moment. We're going to come to worship in a moment as the children come and join us. And when we do get to that point, there'll be a Uh, a reminder on the screen of where we get our children from, how they come back to us. But let's just pause for a moment before we do that. I'm acutely aware of uh, sort of stumbling through a sort of landmine-filled environment, not wishing to stand on any, not wishing to make uh, pain that people are feeling worse. 
So if you're in a place of grieving right now, if this is raw and sharp, simply set the words on one side and receive even now the comfort and the love of God by his spirit. Know that most importantly of all, you are loved beyond measure and that there is hope. But let's let each of us ask the question, how we might live today and tomorrow in the light of what is to come, how it might make a difference to what we speak and what we do. Jesus, thank you for the promise, the gift of eternal life. Help us to live in the light of eternity and to live with joy because of what you've given us.